0: This morning's text comes from Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. It can be found in the Pew Bible on pages 830 and 831. Matthew, chapter 25, beginning at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled those accounts with them. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers, the flower fades.
1: Let's pray together. Lord, all three of the servants began with master. But only, only two of them understood and only two of them lived like it was true. So I'm asking that you would rescue today so that no heart here would Say, Master, ever, and not mean it. No heart here would just mouth words or go through the motions of a life in your household, calling you Master, but not living as though you were. I'm praying today that you will rescue I'm praying today that you will deliver, that you will so work in the power of your spirit in these minutes that there would only be found in this room people who will receive your commendation at the last day. I'm praying that 100% of the people in this room, because you have worked in their lives, will hear you say, enter into the joy of your master. I'm praying Lord, that you would so work now and in the days and weeks and months and years to come in all of our lives that not a single person here would be among the weepers or the teeth gnashers or the dwellers of the outer darkness. You promise us that your sheep hear your voice and that you know them and that they follow you. Please, in your great mercy, bring those promises to pass, and we pray in your name. Amen. Here is a parable that shows us Jesus Christ in his rightful place and us in ours. We spend way too much time, we spend way too much time, way too much of our energy browsing the fiction aisle of the universe, looking at reality. You know, what happens in the fiction aisle of the universe is that reality begins to look upside down. And if you stay there long enough, you learn to live in the wrong direction. And what I mean by that is that it is so easy, and I'm not just talking about people who understand themselves to be non-Christians. I'm talking just as, just as forcefully, just as insistently about Christians. I happen to be one of those, by God's mercy. That living, when you start to look at the world upside down, here's what it looks like. It looks like we're the master and God is our servant like we're the ones who summon God to us. Maybe we pray the prayer. Maybe we maybe we just grow up in a Christian family. Maybe we go to church. We think we can summon Him with our obedience or with what we call our piety, and we make Him our servant. We treat Him. We call Him to us, and then we entrust To him, we put into his hands the things that we consider our great treasures like our dreams and our desires. And we expect him, when we do that, we expect him to hop to it immediately and to put his omnipotence and his omniscience to good use by bringing our desires and our dreams to their fruition. And when we're good and ready on our terms, we call him again to give us an accounting of how he has performed with the sacred things that we have entrusted to him. And if he has delivered what we have desired, we commend him. We might even let him have a little access to what we call our joy. But if he doesn't deliver, if he doesn't deliver in accordance with our desires or our preferences, well, then something very different happens, doesn't it? If we're non-Christians, we condemn him. If we're Christians, we know that we can't do that openly. So what we do is instead we cast him, maybe not into the outer darkness, but into the outer edge of periphery in our lives, the outer edge of relevance in our lives. We cool down. He's in the outer coolness, the outer aloofness, and we keep him there because we're not going to let him disappoint us again. So it's a great mercy of Jesus to pull us out of unreality and to bring us into the non-fiction isle of the universe, which he does through this parable. And he means to retrain our vision so that we don't look, and therefore we don't live, as though reality were upside down. Because reality as it actually is, as Jesus is depicting it, is Jesus Christ is the master, and we are his servants. Everything that we have is his. And one day, one day... And it will be the same day for all of us. One day, every single one of us will give account to Jesus Christ personally for all that we have done and left undone with all that is His. And although the main focus of Jesus' teaching in this parable really is directed at the inside of his church, you have, notice, all three servants, they're in the same household. Notice they all address Jesus as master. Only two, or they address the master as master, sorry. But only two of them really live like he is. Although the main teaching focus of this parable is directed at the inside of the church, those who profess to be Jesus' disciples How much more does this parable have relevance to uh, you if you're a non-Christian? So we'll think this morning uh, about three landmarks Jesus sets forth in this parable that he intends to orient us for faithful living until his second coming. Three huge landmarks. One is our duty He speaks to us of our duty. What's our obligation to him? Secondly, our opportunity. And third, uh, the ultimate beauty that he sets before us, the ultimate beauty of our rewards. What's the motivation? Jesus is describing our duty in the age until his second coming, our opportunity in the age until his second coming, and our ultimate motivation, the ultimate beauty of the rewards that he sets before us. So those are our three headings. Let's look first at our duty. Friends, this is so important. I find this incredibly uh, important these days. It is shocking to me how often I now hear people speak of duty as if it were a dirty word. Duty is not a dirty word. Duty, according to the gospel, is a thing of beauty. I'm so glad that Jesus went to the cross out of a sense of love, energized duty. Right, in in Matthew 16, verse 21, after Peter has just made the great confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus has just told him in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Right right after that, then Matthew describes how Jesus began to teach his disciples. And he says this in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. You remember that? We did a whole sermon just on that one word. And they said it couldn't be done. But listen to this. This is duty, my friends. And this is a beautiful duty that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Friends, that's our salvation. And it's the fruit of this beautiful duty that Jesus followed. And so what happens with the gospel to duty is that it's transformed from being the cause cause of God's grace to us into being the effect of God's grace. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works duty which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them duty and the parable Jesus is is describing the duty of his disciples in the age until his second coming that's his starting point duty do you notice in verse 14 he says for it will be like a man speaking of the kingdom of heaven For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants, right? They're not his equals, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Right at the beginning, the first step Jesus takes in this parable is the theme of duty, right? Friends, readiness for Jesus' second coming begins with Jesus correcting our vision so that we see reality right side up. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are under a sacred duty to Jesus Christ, which is the gift of His grace to you. Because He's not a slave master. He's the king of the universe. To be in his service is the highest honor and privilege that a human being could ever receive. We are not our own, we are his servants, and nothing we have is our own. It's all his property. Every part of what we have, all the opportunities, all the faculties, all the capacities, even all of our suffering and trials, those have been purchased by Jesus Christ. They are His servants in our lives. They belong to Him. He holds the copyright over them. He holds the title of them. They are not ours. They are His. The universal, And equal duty of every single one of Jesus Christ's disciples is where Jesus begins this parable. And we are all of us, every one of us who is in Christ, right, is under this sacred duty to maximize what he has entrusted to us until his return. And I said, and I meant it, I said it because I meant it, equal duty. Yes, there are differences in our abilities, just as you see in the parable, right? The master doesn't give the same talents, as it were, the same number of talents to each of the servants. We're going to talk about our unequal ability and its implications here in a minute. But right now, I just want you to focus on what the servants have in common. See, it's so easy when you read this parable to only focus on the things that separate the servants. Well, this one got five, this one got two, that one got one. These two kind of got it together. This one didn't. Those are important features of the parable, but you cannot let that obscure what they all have in common because this bears directly on each of us if we're going to understand our duty. Like them, right? We have the same relationship to the same master. All three of the servants in the parable have the same relationship. They're all servants to the same master. They have the same time They they each face the prospect of the same accountability. And each of them has been entrusted with massive responsibility. So sure, it's true that one of the servants gets five talents, and one of them two, and one of them one. But do you know how much a single talent was? It was roughly the equivalent of 20 years' wages. We read this parable and we think of the word talent as like ability. That is one possible, one available implication of this metaphor. But literally, what's being described is that to each of the servants, even the one who only gets one, this master has entrusted massive responsibility. Can you imagine somebody writing you a check T- whether you're retired or currently working, for 20 years, the equivalent of 20 years of your wages. That's a massive trust. And you know what that means? That means that this master is according each of these servants with great dignity, isn't he? He's not saying, I'm going on a journey, make sure the toilets are clean. He's not even saying... Make sure you keep the inside of the house clean. He's saying, I'm giving you each a small fortune. And and what he intends is that they will leave the house and trade not with each other in a poker game, but with the outside world representing the master. Using and investing those talents in the world outside the Master's house. Representing the Master. Each has been entrusted, like us, with significant work. Friends, we all have the same relationship to the same master. We have all been given the same time. We have all been, if if you're a Christian, you have been entrusted with such massive treasure that it's really silly. It's like, you know, for us to compare ourselves with each other, which I'll get to in a minute. It's a little bit like, I was trying to think, what's an analogy? Well, it'd be like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, you know, trying to you know, bring, bring each other's checkbooks to lunch. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Sure, there may be differences, but at some point you just say, the differences don't matter. We all have a fortune. We're so preoccupied with those differences. But the master isn't so much. So what this parable illustrates is that despite the differences in our abilities, we all have the same duty, all of us which is to be faithful in our stewardship to the same master with the same diligence and the same earnestness. Now, what do we do with this very clear uh, fact in the text about the unequal ability of the servants? How are we supposed to understand the relationship between our equal duty and our unequal abilities. So this is an important thing to think about. It's actually a beautiful thing to think about. And it it should not be a stumbling block. Think about these servants again with me, right? I mean, verse 15 says that the master allocates the property, right, the talents to the servants, to each according to his ability. Now, here's what I want you to see. None of them has no ability, They all have ability. None of them is without ability or without opportunity. In fact, even the third servant apparently had adequate ability in the estimation of his master to be entrusted with a small fortune. Know this about yourself, brothers and sisters. Know this about God's work in you. Know this. Take God at his word about yourself. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are not someone without abilities or opportunities or riches. You remember just a few weeks ago, we saw, we saw from Ephesians 4 that the ascended, exalted Christ gave gifts to men. That on every one of his people he bestows the spoils of his victory. There is not a single Christian who has not been enriched directly and personally and therefore with responsibility by Jesus Christ. And that is so important. None of us has been entrusted in Jesus' estimation with anything less than a small fortune. To steward for him and that is both a very encouraging thought and a very challenging thought at the same time because as the parable makes clear every single one of us is going to give account no one is off the hook and again you, you know I think we need to we need to we need to broaden this uh, our understanding our interpretation what talents are you know it's it's not necessarily easy things That's why I have the quotes uh, from, from Frodo as your reflection quote. I knew some of you would be thrilled by that and others of you would be saying, oh my goodness. But what I love about those quotes is that when Frodo gets the ring, it's a hard providence in the book. It's a hard providence. And Frodo says, I wish this had not come to me. And Gandalf says, very wisely, you know, that's not for you to decide. What is for you to decide is what you're going to do with the time that has been given to you. Friends, you realize that one of your talents may be your limitations, maybe your trials, maybe it's your divorce, could be your widowhood, could be your bankruptcy, could be your besetting sin, could be your cancer. Every one of those things belongs to Jesus Christ. And he has made you his steward of them. Every one of us is going to give account. But notice what is so beautiful about this. The master doesn't grade on a curve. He evaluates each of the servants individually. Right? When the... When the, when the guy, with the, when the servant with the two talents comes up with four, he doesn't say, hey, your buddy over here showed up with ten. No. That's not how this master measures fidelity. He measures each servant. This is so encouraging, right? This is so encouraging. He measures each servant, though they have equal duties, Equal duties in the sense of owing the master, earnestness and fidelity and creativity and a willingness to move into the world and to take some risk, even the risk of making a mistake, though they all have that same duty and they must work at the, you know, with all the means that God supplies. They must work for their master. In the end, when the master calls them to account, he evaluates each one on his own terms. He does not grade them on a curve. He does not compare them against one another. And in fact, the parable demonstrates this very dramatically because you look at at how the servant who comes with 10 talents is commended by the master in 21. Look at what he says what the master says his master said to him well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful over a little I will set you over much enter into the joy of your master so you would think then that when a servant who comes in with six fewer talents he might not receive the commendation but if you thought that you would be wrong look at verse 23 his master said to him this is now the servant who's only shown up with four His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Exactly identical commendation. Exactly identical reward. You know what that means? That means that the differences in ability have nothing to do with merit. Did you hear me? That means that the differences in abilities between and among the servants and therefore, by extension, the differences in our abilities have nothing, zero, to do with merit. What is commended by the master is the servant's fidelity in using what he is and what he has. Not, Not... in comparison to someone else. I think that's very important. Our differences in ability are not differences in merit. I will probably need to say that 63,000 more times. Just to myself this morning. We misunderstand. See, we look at, again, this is what happens when you hang out in the fiction aisle of the universe. Okay? You spend too much time there. You listen to, you drink too much of the Kool Aid on the fiction aisle of the universe. You know what you're gonna, how you're going to begin to think? That differences in ability among people are essentially about differences in merit among people. And that's not how God thinks. That is not how Jesus thinks. Things. and so what happens is when you start when you start drinking that kool-aid what ends up happening is you begin to view reality as though it were a kind of a caste system right and you think of yourself and it, it, you think of yourself as in either a higher or lower caste based on your Perception and evaluation and maybe to some extent the confirmation or non-confirmation of your abilities relative to other people. And you place yourself in the caste system of reality. And you think of reality then as a meritocracy of men. Well, reality is a caste system at one level, right? And there are two castes, God and his creatures. Reality is a meritocracy, God's. Differences in ability, my friends, are not about the merit of men. They're about the merit of God. The merit of God. They are wise and gracious gifts of His sovereignty from the top down, not trophies that we grow from the bottom up. Lord, have mercy. I mean, I was trying to think of an analogy, you know, and I thought, and maybe I spend too much time in my shed, you know, some of these analogies, they make sense in the shed, and then I bring them out into the light of the day, light of the day and i like, wow, what was I thinking? But I'm going to give it to you anyway. How weird would it be if you and I walked around and kind of uh, created a kind of a social pecking order based on our fingerprints? Every one of our fingerprints is different. And what if we began to organize ourselves, you know, into a caste system based on some arbitrary feature that we value in some fingerprints that are more prominent in some fingerprints than others? I mean, how kooky would that be? No kookier, right, than developing a caste system based on abilities. If you have certain aptitudes or certain abilities or certain opportunities, the only reason you have them is because God gave them to you. It has nothing to do with your merit and everything to do with his. The differences between us are very, very, very small. Do not waste a second of the time or energy that Jesus Christ your master has entrusted to you by, became, by comparing yourself either favorably or unfavorably to another person. The two servants who are commended for their work are utterly free from either, right? The, the one with five talents is utterly free. There's not a trace of any superiority complex and the one with two There's no evidence of an inferiority complex because each of them knows their master is going to evaluate them individually. So stop wasting Jesus' time and energy by comparing yourself to someone. It's not your time anyway. They're not your emotional resources anyway. Start spending his stuff on things that actually matter to him. Repent is what I'm saying. When you and I spend our emotional energy and our thought lives comparing ourselves to other brothers and sisters, we are stealing. We are poaching on the from the royal estate of Jesus Christ, which is our lives. We should stop doing that. We should cry that we do that. The only servant whose opportunities and abilities you actually know is your is yourself. just that simple okay that's our duty equal duty unequal abilities now let's go to opportunity it's the second lesson of Jesus's parable and what's so fascinating about it? we all have equal opportunity and yet that equal opportunity that we've been entrusted with meets with unequal responses and you see that first I mean really the point here is that every single one of Jesus' disciples has been entrusted with an equal opportunity to serve him until his return. Let me explain first from looking at the parable. Consider the servants in the parable, right? We've already thought together about how they each have the same standing Right, The same relationship to their master, the duty that he imposes on them is the same, they receive essentially the same instructions, they have the same time, the time, the same time available to them, and therefore their, and their accountability is the same. They're facing exactly the same prospect. They each enjoy, because the master has given it to them, the same freedom to risk and exercise creativity and imagination in pursuit of fidelity to their master's charge. They have the same opportunity in those key respects. Now, the case for the equality of opportunity is even stronger when you think about us. Because for all the differences in our abilities, these differences in the end are basically superficial. What really defines us in terms of our ability is our essential equality. Let me explain what I mean. Consider this, we all have the same master and king. We all have the same Bible. We all have the same cross. We all have the same stewardship imposed upon us. We have the same master and king, the same Bible, the same gospel, the same cross, the same stewardship. None of us gets more or less. Now, this is absolutely staggering. You, I, I really just plead with you to think about the implications of this, and not just for the next two minutes, but for the rest of your life. None of us receives more or less than the work of Christ. None of us needs or receives more or less of the work of Christ than any of the others of us. None of us gets more or less of the promises of God. None of us gets more or less of the faithfulness of God or access to God through Jesus Christ or the ears of God or the eyes of God or the heart of God or the grace of God or the triumph of God in Jesus Christ or the willingness of God. None of us gets more or less of that than the other. And yet, the reality is that there are unequal responses to these equal opportunities. And Jesus depicts that very dramatically in the parable. I mean, it doesn't it stagger you to think about that unequal response? I mean, I call those things we just walked through. You, if you're a Christian, you are the richest person in the universe outside the Trinity, you have things that even the most glorious archangel cannot say is his which is why in 1st 1 Peter 1:12 1, Peter says all these the salvation that the prophets were prophesying about right the these things that 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 were prophesied in the prophets, and then were proclaimed in the the ministers of the gospel that have been proclaimed to us the things that now have landed upon us in the gospel at the ends of the ages, the things that are sitting, the treasure in our laps, the angels long to look into. You and I have these things from the inside, and the angels are on the outside. It's the Trinity and us in there. So, in our unequal responses, we are wasting a lot of treasure. Think about the parable. It's very interesting. What, what, look at the first two servants. You, did you notice how most of the space in the parable isn't given to the first two servants? It's given to the third servant. Six verses on the third servant, at least. But, but the, the two servants who are commended, here's what they both have in common. They both pleased their master uh, by trading with his property in the world, like I was mentioning earlier. They were willing to use the freedom that, this is, I think, so important. They were willing to use the freedom that he had given them, uh, that the master had given them by trading with his property in the world, and they risked, they risked, you have to risk, you have to be creative. You, you can't just wait, sit and wait around to do what you're told. The master's already left plenty of instructions. Are you really insisting that there be a shaft of light? Well, here it is, it's in the shape of a book. This is a shaft of light. Wherever you go, the shaft of God's light is right there. You want God to guide you? Here you go. Here you go. Now, is every response to his instructions here going to be identical? Absolutely not. God doesn't make robots. He doesn't flatten out the distinctions between people. God loves diversity. So some of his people are authors, some of them are God-honoring mechanics and moms, some of them are God-honoring stockbrokers who use their, you, you know, you just endlessly. They don't all look the same. The third servant stands out, not because he received the least, but because he did the least with what he received. And his case, I think, is a very sobering case. Because, you know, you think about the alternatives that were available to him. I mean, he didn't do what the prodigal son did. He didn't take the treasure and then go spend it. He didn't ditch the master's house and then go spend the treasure on loose living and prostitutes. He didn't do that. He didn't do what the servant did at the end of Matthew 24. He didn't go hang out with drunkards and then you know, beat up his fellow servants. He didn't do that. He was actually, from the outside, he looked like he was a really good servant. This is so important to see. And he buried, do you know why he buried the treasure? Because he didn't want to lose it. He didn't have a PNC bank on the corner. In fact, what the master says he should have done is actually riskier than what he did do. Because there was no FDIC. Do you even know what I'm talking about? Okay, right? When the master says, hey, you should have at least gone to the bankers. Well, you know what the bankers were there? It was, it was Lenny with his table and a bag of money and a ledger book. And the master says, that would have been way better than what you did by digging a hole. See, the servant is saying, I, I want to keep what's the master's. This is a very conservative approach that he has taken. You need to see that. He did not. It looks very moralistic, doesn't it? He buries it for safe keeping. I think that needs to sink in. That really drilled down deep into my heart this week. When I realized that he had other alternatives that would have carried him out of the house, that would have openly and overtly rejected the masterhood of the master, that would have involved the servant openly and deliberately stealing and converting what was the master's property for loose living, Or maybe he would want to buy a condo in Boca, whatever it is. And he didn't do that, but instead he was conservative. What his strategy was was holding the status quo would be good enough. And the end result is that both the master's capital and the servant himself were unchanged. Look at what he says when he appears before the master. This is so interesting. It's such a contrast. The first two servants, if you look at verse 20 and again, verse 22, when the first two servants come, they say exactly the same thing. Notice how they begin. Master, you delivered to me, right? So you just see that they understand the relationship, right? You're the master. I'm the servant. You gave your stuff to me. I was obligated to invest it according to your will. Both of the first two servants say that. Now look at how the third servant begins in verse 24. Master, okay, same word at the beginning, but now notice what he does. He inserts his own evaluation. I knew you to be a hard man. You see, he is not submitting himself to the master's thoughts. He's vetoing and overriding the master's thoughts with his own. Do you see that? I knew you to be a hard man. And so, what the servant essentially is doing, he's he's blaming the master for his own conservatism. He's saying, this is so ironic, he's saying, hey, it's because I knew the truth about you that I didn't take a risk. It's because I knew you that I didn't invest your property. When the reality is that in that very confession and in calling the master a hard man, he is revealing that he doesn't know the master at all. Especially, can you say that this master whom we just heard commend the first and the second servants, where he says, you've done great. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to give you a promotion and put you in charge of much. Enter into the joy of your master. That doesn't sound like a hard man. Does that sound like a hard man to you? No, the, the, the irony of what the third servant says is that he's living in the house with the master and doesn't know the master. It's very similar to the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He doesn't have a clue about the master. He doesn't know him, and he doesn't know himself. Oh, that's so important. You notice what he says to the master in verse 25? Here, here you have what is yours. But that reveals, and and what is yours is, um, and what he's handing to the master is just the same Stuff that the master gave to him. So that means that the master's capital has not been increased. And it also means that the servant has not been changed. Now, I think this is very important about what the master's design is when we think about what the implications of this parable are for our lives. Right? When the servant says to him and presents the one talent back to the master, here you have what is yours, um, no, the master doesn't have what is his. Because the master's rightful claims are over both the property and the servant. And those claims are greater than the servant is willing to acknowledge um, over both the property and the servant. Right? The, 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 the master, as you can tell from how the first two servants responded, the master has visions of growth. He has intentions of growth. For both his property and his servants. We get the the growth in capital. We get that. But do you notice also in the way the master commends the first two servants? He doesn't just say, Great job. He says, He doesn't just say, Great job, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. There's something that he says in between to both those servants in verses 21 and 23. He says, You have been faithful over a little I will put you over much now do you see what that means that means that the master's plan from the beginning has been to grow not only his capital but the servants to whom he entrusted that opportunity how could you not be grown by investing what belongs to the master right the master's plan all along was to entrust more responsibility to them And his plant, he obviously had more property, right? He had more property because he's got much that they haven't already received. So the master's thinking at the beginning, I want to grow my servants. I want to grow my capital. So I'm going to give them this portion of my fortune... So that through the, pro- through the process of investing and doing all the things that they will have to do in order to follow my will, not only will my capital be grown, but so will my servants be grown and then they will be grown into and enlarged for the greater visions of growth and enlargement that I have for them. Do you think it's possible, friends? that Jesus would have such designs for your life? So you say, I don't know why I have this trial or these limitations. I don't know why I've been given this opportunity or these abilities. What if he intends that you steward those opportunities and those abilities in such a way that not only, that that both what is Jesus's grow and, and, and you grow. See, if you, if you and I, see, the implications of this are very dramatic for us because it means that until Jesus' second coming, I and this, this will induce, I mean, to think about this, simultaneously induces terror and exhilarates. I, I find this totally scary and totally exhilarating. It reminds me of doing that crazy parachute jump I did. It was was the Tower of Terror with a capital T for me. And it was the Thrill with a capital T of my life. The same thing. Until his second coming, Jesus has entrusted each of his people with a wide freedom, a wide freedom to pursue fruitful stewardship by believing And resting upon his gospel to such a degree and with such joyous tenacity that we are emboldened to creatively and energetically and faithfully seize opportunities and in the process even risk great mistakes. The chilling example of the third servant is that he is unwilling to risk and unwilling to make a mistake in fact the only mistake that this parable condemns is the unwillingness to potentially make a mistake because when you trade stuff you may you may lose sometimes friends I wonder if you believe that the gospel gives you the freedom to make mistakes by faith I hope you do every mistake is not a sin. Oh, that is such an important distinction. If you're a moralist and you think that it's your obedience that earns God's favor for you and that, you know, in conversion, that you're good enough and and then you qualify for conversion and then after conversion, it's still your obedience that keeps god's favor on your side if you think that then you will think you will live with a theology that says i can't make any mistakes but if you live with that theology if you do not have a theology of mistake you do not have a theology according to the gospel every mistake is not a sin only the things that are not done by faith are sin romans 14 23 you can make a mistake by faith You can make a mistake by what you think and what you believe and what you hope and what you have sought as God's will. And you can do it by faith, and it may prove as you look back at it that that was a mistake. Think about what Romans 12 2 says. I think this is absolutely staggering. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by test. Now, listen to this next phrase that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Wait, 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 what what do you mean? What do you mean by testing you may discern what is the will of God? You know what Paul's talking about? He's talking about trial and error, my friends. Because everything that you and I have to do in the Christian life is not explicitly addressed in the Bible. You don't have a command for everything. Oh, that's important. The third servant took the snap and he held onto the ball to run the clock out. That's all he did. It's one of the things I hate about football, by the way. That's just ridiculous. Never will understand that. It's totally different from a pitcher taking a walk around the mound for 10 hours. Totally different. The third servant takes the snap, he runs the clock out. That's his strategy. What about you? What are you doing? with the time, the energy, the abilities, even the trials that the Lord has entrusted you. You know, when I got to this point in the sermon, I kept thinking about, this picture kept coming in my mind. I thought, you know, because this, this, the amount of freedom that the Master gives to the servants here and that Jesus is entrusting to us is so big. I just thought, but it's beautiful, right? And, it, and I had this picture of being, being in a studio with this massive canvas on the wall, you know, like a Jackson Pollock-sized canvas. And then there's this can of brushes and all these paints. And with the music of the gospel playing, Jesus essentially giving, uh, giving me the charge, okay, here's this blank canvas called whatever time I've entrusted to you. And now what I'm charging you to do with the music of my gospel you hearing it, thinking about it, savoring it for the rest of the life that I give you on this side of glory, your job is to use the freedom and the opportunity and the time and the abilities and your eyes and your heart and all those things and even the interruptions with friends and other things that go on. Your job is to depict, not just to believe truth about me, but to depict on that canvas the truth about me. You know what? all the way that you and I would do that, it wouldn't be all the same, would it? It's not supposed to be. None of us can exhaust the beauty of the truth of Jesus. But that's the freedom. Well, you know, if you stood in front of a canvas like that with that charge, would you be frozen? And and if Jesus was your master and you were hearing the music of the gospel, friend, would you be frozen or would you be freed? This is supposed to free us paint to transcribe the truth about Jesus yes and even to make mistakes by faith in doing so that's the opportunity we've been given Jesus means to unleash our renovated his glory through our renovated and redeemed intellects and abilities and imaginations and the opportunities that he entrusts to us to unleash that true story about him into the world Okay, what's going to motivate you to do that as we close? What's going to drive you to do that? What's going to, what's going to be the ballast for you? Why should you do that? I mean, I know that when you hear duty so far, the two, first two pieces of the sermon are duty, oh boy, thanks a lot, Mike, and then opportunity, okay? And so if you're even just sort of like me, you're thinking, man, I have just wasted so much stuff, and this is hard, and you know it's scary. What is it that actually is going to motivate you? I mean, the sermon didn't end with duty. It didn't end with opportunity. It's, it's, it's going to end on beauty because that's the way Jesus' parable ends, the beauty of our ultimate rewards. How are you supposed to read this parable? Well, I'll tell you, the right way to read this parable requires you to recognize the difference between your story and the stories of the servants. I mean, the first two servants, that's a great, those are great stories. It's the third servant who really should get our attention. right? But, and it ends very badly. He's, he's, he's deprived, dispossessed of, of all that had been entrusted to him because what the master essentially says is, I'll give you what you want. You didn't want me? You, you wanted to be irrelevant? You didn't want to be changed? I'll give you exactly what you've asked for. And he is cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is an image Jesus uses throughout Matthew's gospel to describe both the suffering and the uh, sadness of hell. But when you look at his story, friends, you are not to read that story fatalistically. His story is closed. Yours and mine are still wide open. Wide open. So do not read this parable and say, oh, well, I'm just going to resolve because you look at your track record and you think, I basically stink. And you say, so why should I even try? That would be fatalistic resignation. But that's not why Jesus has brought you here. That's not why he gave this parable in... Uh, to his disciples. That is not why the Holy Spirit is helping us understand this parable today, because what he means to do is not leave us in a place where we f- are, are, a place of fatalistic resignation where we just give up. But what he means to lead each of us into is what I will call an opportunistic repentance where we go, if we've been convicted that we have buried a trial, that we go dig it up and put it into the service of Jesus. And what's going to motivate you to do that? Well, in the parable, think I want you to think about the master's generosity in the parable, friends. It's, it's lavish, it's multi-layered. I mean, his commendation for the two servants is very, very generous. But did you notice that saying, well done, good and faithful servant, Saying, I'm gonna, you've been faithful over little, I'm gonna put you in charge of much, that that's not his ultimate reward. Did you notice that kind of the crowning climactic gift that the master has to give, that he has available to give, and that he does give to both those servants is beyond his approval, beyond further responsibility. It's relational intimacy with him. Enter into the joy of your master. See, not just joy. But the great, What the master gives, the greatest gift the master gives his servants is himself. That's exactly what the third servant didn't want any piece of. So that's what he ended up with. You know what has stirred my heart this week um, in this text? What has stirred my heart again and again and what I pray stirs your heart, and what propels me uh, toward, you know, with, with a renewed energy toward wanting to be a better and more faithful steward over what the Lord Jesus has entrusted to me is this. It's the story of the master who tells us this parable. It's just thinking about Jesus' story, the master to whom each of us will give account, Jesus Christ. Like the master in the parable, he is the greatest gift he has to give. Like the master in the parable, he is the ultimate measure and expression of his own generosity. Think of it. You know, if you think back to where we began, what, what life is like in the fiction isle of the universe, where we make God our servant, we have no right to do that. But you know what? Jesus has every right. We have no right to make Jesus our servant, but Jesus has every right to make himself our servant, which is exactly what he did. He was the master who was willing for our sake to take, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to take the form of a servant. See, unless unless you see your duty and your opportunity embedded in the master's story, in this larger story, you'll have no power, no willingness, You you will not endure, you'll just give up. But if you see your story, the story of your duty and your opportunity embedded in the beauty of the story of the master to whom you will give account, well then, then there will be joy, there will be wonder, there will be energy, there will be endurance because Jesus was the master willing to take the form of a servant, willing to be entrusted with the dual mission of fulfilling what God had designed for people to do. See, we were given a stewardship through Adam and we failed in that stewardship. And Jesus was willing, who was the master, right? He was willing to make himself the servant, to take on the dual mission of fulfilling the stewardship that God had given to us. And then through his faithful service to save sinners. He was, the, he was so infinitely good and so infinitely faithful as God's servant and ours, that He has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. The High One, whom we have no right to obligate to us, has every right in His sovereign grace to obligate Himself to us, which is what He's done. I wonder if you caught the irony And what the third servant says in verse 24 and how he describes the master he also who had received the one talent came forward saying master I knew you to be a hard man reaping now it's this this, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed Friends, do you realize that that perfectly describes Jesus? It perfectly describes Jesus because he is the master who came, who was willing to come to reap what he did not sow. That's the whole reason he came, was so that he could reap what we sowed, right? That was what his mission was, to come Calvary, Good Friday, that was the harvest day, my friends. He reaped what you and I had sown through our sin and disobedience to God. It was his mission from the beginning to come and to reap what he had not sown and to gather up the harvest that he had not planted. And he was willing to do it. He was willing to come and reap what we had sown and to harvest what we had scattered so that we could reap what he had sown and harvest what he had scattered. Friends, that's the story of the master who has entrusted treasure to us and to whom we will give account our lives Our stewardship are to be propelled by gratitude and wonder. You know what Jesus says to us? He says to a sinner, because I have taken what is yours here, you may now have all that is mine and all that I am. Friends, Jesus willingly came knowing that what he was going to reap was the judgment of God, which is what you and I had sown in our sins. That was the harvest that each of us deserves. And apart from Jesus Christ, that is what you will receive. You will receive exactly what you sowed. God is not mocked. Whatsoever you sow that shall you reap. And what Jesus' mission was about is whatever those who repent of their sins and trust in him sowed, that is what he was willing to reap in your place so that we might harvest. This is the one who holds himself out to us. This is the one who gives himself to us as our ultimate reward. It's entering into his joy and receiving him, the one who will give himself fully to us at the return when he says to us, enter into the joy of your master. May we be found faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we, we confess that all of us underestimate the duty All of us underestimate the opportunity and all of us underestimate the beauty of our ultimate reward, which is you. And so we have so much room to grow, so much room to be persuaded, so much room to be corrected, so much room to be rebuked and edified and fed and taught. Now take our hearts, our lives, and lead us. You are the master, and we are your servants. And we pray in your name. Amen.
0: Please stand as we now.